Luke 18. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who himself, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Our Father and our God, we give thanks for your word, for it is living and active, piercing to the soul, dividing our thoughts, Lord, even down to the joints, the marrow, separating blood, bone, sinew. Lord, you know our hearts, and your word, Lord, pierces us through. And Lord, you pierce us only to raise us again to life, to see you to commune with you. And we, hope, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless these words, the meditations of my heart, and may they be acceptable in your sight, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Um, he told them a parable, that they ought to pray and not lose heart. John MacArthur speaks of a parable and defines it quite simply as an ingeniously simple word picture illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. And we're given two here in this parable. We're given this parable of an unrighteous judge and a persistent widow who persists in her appeals for justice from this unrighteous judge. The judge has power to resolve her complaint. And so she knows she must go to the source of power to resolve that complaint. And then we're given this other picture, this other parable, to be able to help us to see the posture of a truly repentant, justified sinner over against the hypocrite, the hypocrite who pretends to be what he never intends to be, as my pastor likes to say back home. Instead, we're told that the penitent tax collector, the, the one that was really thought so lowly by the conservatives of the day, it's actually he who goes to his house justified. He is the one who is redeemed and saved from his sins. 
He recognizes when he is appealing to heaven that he himself cannot even look to heaven. So in some sense, we're given various pictures here, not a complete picture, but a picture of what prayer is. Prayer is going to one who has power to resolve a complaint. Prayer is also uh, recognizing that there is someone who is other than us. There is a creator and creature distinction in prayer. This tax collector, he fully gets it. He understands. The Pharisee is commending himself, and yet the tax collector comes with a repentant, humble posture. We're looking at praying always. Jesus told them that they should pray always and not lose heart. Are you in danger of losing heart today? Are you in danger of doubting? Is your faith weak? Perhaps you've had a difficult diagnosis. Perhaps you have difficult relationships with friends or family. Uh, perhaps there's a difficult situation at work. Jesus told them to pray always and not lose heart. This is not a sermon or an exhortation or a testimonial to try and help you to feel badly about your prayer life. Let's just go ahead and get that out of the way. I've heard lots of sermons about prayer. And I can tell you, it's not always the thing that lifts me up. Instead, I can start feeling quite beat down because I don't pray enough. I don't come to you here as a prayer warrior. I don't come to you as one who has prayer figured out. Who among us can stand up and say, we've got it. We've got it figured out. Follow me in my prayer life. No, I think we would all want to say that we lack in this regard. And yet Jesus tells us to pray always and not lose heart. Elsewhere, we'll look in the scriptures in the New Testament and we're told to pray without ceasing. Really? <laughs> How do you do that? How do you pray without ceasing? Let's look into all of this this morning. Let's take encouragement. Why? So that we would not lose heart. I don't know if you have another hour on this planet, another day, another week, a month, year, 70 years. You don't know. I don't know. But I do know that we should pray always and not lose heart. Jesus knew that we were given to discouragement. Jesus understood in our finitude that we would need to be connected to the infinite. We don't have the resources in ourselves to go the distance. We do not have the ability to finish the race in our own strength. We do not have the armory to fight the good fight in ourselves. We should pray always and not lose heart. We will be tempted hourly, daily, weekly to lose heart. Some of us are temperamentally a little more given to this. Some 
seem to have this buoyant, I can conquer all type of attitude. Actually, don't believe those people. It's actually the ones who are honest about their despondency, their despair. No, not that we would wallow there, but they understand the frailty and fallenness of this world. I believe the ones who can't lift their eyes to heaven and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the prayer that Jesus tells them to pray is to one who has power to pray in a persistent way. And we're told later in the scriptures to pray without ceasing. It's important to note the context of these parables, this picture that he gives it. He's, as you see just in the preceding verses, he's speaking to his disciples. He's not speaking to the world. He's certainly speaking about the world and giving some illustrations here, but he's speaking to his disciples, and that is an important aspect about prayer. How many of us have heard celebrities who want to send out thoughts and prayers about this situation or this disaster? A friend of mine was at a Coldplay concert, and they had to take a moment to send thoughts and prayers to Ukraine. Not sure what that was doing in that moment, but the lead singer for Coldplay thought it was going to do something. Good vibes were going to Ukraine from that stadium. I don't know what that was accomplishing. Unbelievers do not have communion with God the Father through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. The prayer of the unrighteous is an abomination to God. The prayer of the righteous is a welcome sound of a father listening to his child coming to him. God welcomes prayer. So let's just be clear. We're speaking about prayer. Prayer is something that Christians do. Unbelievers do not. They can cry out to God in faith, which would mean they are becoming a child of God and that they are calling out to their father through Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit. So between Christ's first advent and his second coming, which is yet to come, he told us we should pray and not lose heart. The Westminster Shorter Catechism speaks of prayer as an offering up of our desires to God. Simple as that. Offering up of our desires to God for things that are agreeable to his will. We don't know all of God's will, but we ask for those things that are agreeable to his will. We're not God. He's God. So we defer and depend upon him. And we ask all of these things in the name of Christ. We confess our sins, and we thankfully acknowledge all of his mercies. Think about the importance of prayer in the life of God's people. We're told that Noah prays. We're told that Abraham prays, that Moses prays, that David prays, Daniel prays, Jonah prays where? In the belly of a big fish, at the bottom of the sea. We're also told that Jesus prays. We're given pictures of the importance of prayer in the life of God's people. 
not as a way to make us feel guilty or bad, but to say this is what Christians do. They talk with God. And so we're given so many pictures, but let's go to the the beginning, the very beginning. Adam, there he is, walking in the garden. And we're told that he communes with the Lord in the cool of the day. What a beautiful picture of prayer. Adam, Eve, walking, speaking with the Lord in the cool of the day. There in that holy temple, they were there in worship and adoration, offering up their desires to God, recognizing their creatureliness, but communing with their creator, indeed face-to-face, unashamed. Think about the beauty of that moment. There's an author that speaks of our whole sense of being today is drenched with a sense of exile. We all remember, we all remember in our souls what it was like to walk in Eden with the Lord. And we long for it. In Ecclesiastes, we're told that eternity is set into the heart of man. And so we long for that eternal moment of unbroken fellowship with the Lord. Prayer restores that. Prayer brings us into that communion with God. How important is prayer? Martin Luther said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Hyperbole, probably considering Martin Luther. However, you get his point. So many of us rush about our daily business, myself included, scarcely stopping to commune with the Lord. We can be overwhelmed by our busyness, our to-dos, the pings of these infernal devices, and we can be distracted and pulled away. And yet we're told that what our souls long for is a restoration of that communion with the Lord, just as we had in Eden. That is what prayer is getting us back to. It is that communion with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Even John Bunyan speaks of pilgrim. Christian was given the weapon of all prayer. That was his weapon that was given to him. And so prayer simply is communion with God the Father through God the Son and the power of God the Spirit. We're going to hammer that phrase over and over again today. That is what prayer is. So this returns us to that moment in the garden, even as we await an eternal restoration of Eden, of an eternal restoration of being with the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit in the temple, brought face to face. Eden was the temple We are longing to be part of that moment again as God's people. And yet we're told that we are to pray without ceasing. As a young Christian, that overwhelmed me. Praying without ceasing. How in the world was I supposed to do that? 
Paul models this and and echoes this in how he writes to the Ephesians and to the Colossians. And you see the outworking of this in his ministry. He writes in Ephesians 6 that he's encouraging those saints there to pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, to be alert and to always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Jesus is commending us to pray and to not lose heart, to pray without ceasing so that we don't lose heart. And Colossians 4, Ephesians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, we're told to pray always, praying without ceasing. This is not hyperbole. This is something Christians do. If you're a child of God, you are praying. We may not pray consciously in the same way as we ought, and hopefully today we will reflect more upon what prayer is, and that will motivate us to love and adore and to be drawn to prayer and to fight against the distractions, the doubts, the despair, and yes, even our own sin. Prayer is another way that we keep our mind on things that are above, where Christ is, seated in the heavenly places. Prayer is a pervasive awareness of the Lord that keeps us from contemplating on other things. Prayer keeps us aware of who God is. I love this picture, this story, this moment that is told to us in the book of Nehemiah. It's in the second chapter. It's a very short interaction. Nehemiah is exiled. He's serving under Artaxerxes. Okay, probably the most powerful king at that moment on the planet. He's cupbearer to Artaxerxes, and so he's accustomed to coming in and out of the court, knows the king, um, is depended on by the king, relied upon by the king, and has a relationship with the king. There's also a beautiful picture there of prayer, of Nehemiah being able to speak with the king freely. But the king sees one day that Nehemiah is distraught, despaired, sad, downcast. Why is he downcast? You'll recall, he hears a report about the state of Jerusalem. He hears about the temple and the walls of the city. Jerusalem is in disrepair. It lies in ruins. It's the city where God had set the ark, had set his temple, and now God's people are dislocated. They have no home. Nehemiah is distraught. He's despairing. He's saddened by this. The king says to him, what is it that you want? The next phrase is amazing. It says, then I, Nehemiah, then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. The king says to him, what do you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and then I said. I prayed to the God of heaven, then I said. So if Artaxerxes says, what is it that you want? You better not take too long to answer, right? You speak up to those in authority. What is it that you want? In the moment between Artaxerxes' question and Nehemiah's reply, Nehemiah had time to make an appeal 
to an even greater king. See what it says? Artaxerxes asked, what do you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. What a beautifully simple and powerful illustration that is of prayer, of prayer for us. It's not so much the, the formula of the words. It's not this structure. We're given beautiful patterns of prayer in the scriptures. Our Lord gives us a pattern for prayer. And yet prayer is simply that offering up to God a request, an appeal in a nanosecond. And indeed, the Spirit knows what we want and makes that appeal right with us to the most powerful king, Artaxerxes, his time's going to come and go. Nehemiah knows that. And yet, he appeals to the greater king and then speaks to this lesser king. Just in a moment. So Nehemiah sees all of life in relation to God and his work in the world. He recognizes that God and his sovereignty and his providence is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He knows that he has made promises to his people. He knows that he is going to restore his people. He knows that he is going to bring them home so that that nation would be a blessing, not to that nation, but to the nations. That was the great promise given to Abraham, that in your seed you will be a blessing to the nations. And we know now, of course, the fuller revelation of that mystery that was revealed in those times. And yet, Nehemiah is aware of God in relationship to the entirety of his work in this world. Prayer unites us to what God is doing throughout this world. This is what prayer does, and the one to whom we are praying. It unites us and connects us. And so when you're walking around this city, when you're walking in the park, when you see someone, when you meet someone, consider who they are in relationship to God. Have that pervasive mindset of God and his work in the world as you go through your daily activities, as you bump into people on the street, as you sat, sit down in a coffee shop, as you sit down with a family member, as you visit someone who's in the hospital, as you correspond with someone who's in jail. Think of where they are in relationship to the Lord because he is at work. He is at work here just as he was at work in Babylon or in Jerusalem or in Mumbai, in Cape Town, all over. God is at work. Prayer unites us to that reality of all that he is doing. Listen to how Paul depends on prayer for his own ministry. In Ephesians 1, he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all of God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his inglorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power to those of us who believe. And he goes on to just express 
his desire to help the Ephesian Christians to understand who they are in relationship to the Holy Trinity, his powerful sovereign work in their life. This is what every pastor wants. This is what your pastor prays for you, that your eyes would be opened, enlightened to see God for who he is, to understand his powerful work in you, to unite you to understanding who Jesus Christ is in your relationship in him. He wants the Ephesians, and he goes on and expresses this in Colossians as well. He wants all who read his letters to live in such a way so that they understand that just as it is for his own life, so it is for theirs, that prayer is as natural as inhaling and exhaling. Inhaling and exhaling. That is prayer. This is how natural it is to be for us. We shouldn't overcomplicate prayer. It's as natural as inhaling and exhaling. Prayer is also militant, isn't it? It stirs us to action, calls us to arms. In Ephesians chapter 6, there's the context of spiritual warfare. And we all know that we are warring against the flesh, yes, the world, yes, but we're also warring against spiritual forces that the devil is marshalling against God's elect. (laughs) He's not fighting against the world. The devil's fighting against the church. He's fighting against you, against me. That's who the devil is fighting against. He already has the world in his hand. He's coming after you. And so we have to have spiritual resources to combat. And so we are engaged militantly. One pastor has said, we cannot actually know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Life is war. So prayer is an expression of belief and the power of God to save and to work powerfully through us. Paul exhorts the the Ephesians to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all prayers and all requests, with this in mind, to be alert and to always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for him, Paul, that whenever he speaks, words may be given to him so that he will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. What, Paul? You're tempted to fear? Yes, yes. Even the apostle Paul was tempted to fear. Pray that he will speak fearlessly. Do you pray for your pastor that he will speak fearlessly the word of God with power? Pray for your pastor. Pray for those who would come alongside and serve as elders in this congregation. Pray for the churches in this city that they would fearlessly proclaim the gospel and that they would not accommodate to what the world wants to hear. Too many pastors are caught up in the myth of influence, thinking that if we can just get the world to like us, if we can sound erudite enough, if we could use some of their words and their terminology, if we could appeal to some of their stories, 
No, we don't need to hear another exposition of an Avengers movie and why that is going to help us to better understand the gospel. No, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Pray that the pastors, the preachers of the word, would be lifted up and that the Lord would raise up more, more workers for the harvest. The harvest is out there. How's it going to come? Through the preaching of the word. Paul says to the Ephesians, pray for me that I will be fearless to make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray for that. We want an awakening. Do we, do we not? As God's people, we want to see an awakening. The reality is, when you look around this city, this land, this political experiment that's been given to us in these United States, what we see happening now in the erosion and the deterioration socioculturally, politically, in the legal sphere, in the economic sphere, what's happening between people from different ethnicities and even within people's own families. This does not get turned around by the next election. This political experiment does not get turned around by who we have sitting in the White House. No, as R.C. Sproul would say, what's most important is that people recognize who sits over the White House. And that is what we need to hear, and that is what prayer stimulates us to pray for, that the Lord would bring an awakening. An awakening is what we need here and throughout this land. We want to see a revival. Edwards knew that a return to prayer was a return to God so that he would bring an awakening. We see this throughout history. Jonathan Edwards talks about prayer being an explicit agreement and visible union of God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion. Do you meet to pray? Do you pray with one another? Of course, we would all say, no, not as much as we ought. But do you? Of course you do. You're part of God's family. You pray to the Lord. And the other element here is that prayer helps us to know who God is. And that's the, the amazing aspect about prayer, because prayer is communion. Remember, communion with God the Father through God the Son and the power of God the Holy Spirit. That's what prayer is, communion. Communion, being brought into fellowship with the Trinity. How does Paul express the believer's position. What's his favorite terminology? What does he say? You are in Christ. How often does he say that? So often. Throughout all of his letters, he's speaking of believers being in Christ. In Colossians, he's talking about them being buried with him in baptism and raised to walk, seeing their relationship to Christ as union with Christ. Prayer makes us more aware of our union with Christ. Prayer helps us to not wink at sinful desires that we may have, lust of the flesh, pride. Rather, we are told that we should kill what is earthly in us. We struggle and fight with sin. 
sin is still with us. Prayer helps us to fight against our earthly desires. Instead, we're told in Colossians to put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Do not lie to one another, because see that you have now put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. How can we go on sinning is the logic since we are united to Christ. Prayer unites us and reminds us of that vital communion. Vital means life, that living communion with God the Father, through God the Son, and the power of God the Holy Spirit. So how do we kill what is earthly in us? We die to self, but we live to Christ through prayer. How does Christ himself express this union? That beautiful passage in John 15, you know it, you love it, to abide in Christ. And he gives us that beautiful picture of the vine and the branches. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to me to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Brothers and sisters, we will have an eternity to try and exhaust the meaning of that. As the Father has loved the Son from all eternity, so Christ has loved us. Prayer brings us into that holy communion. It restores that temple of Eden communion. We even now are brought into that temple and that communion to know who God is, to know God so that we would be increasing in our knowledge of God, to grow in our knowledge of what it is that the Father loved the Son for all eternity. And so now Jesus loves us. He tells us elsewhere, I've loved you to the uttermost. What does that mean? Oh, we see just a glimpse of it, don't we? But we have an eternity in front of us to try and exhaust the riches there. And the beauty is, is that we will never exhaust the riches of that truth. As the Father has loved the Son, so he has loved us. And so that is what it means to pray and grow in the knowledge of God, to now be united with Jesus Christ. You are being brought into knowing who Christ is. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about you learned Christ. Don't go in this direction. Grow, grow in the way that you have learned Christ. Putting off your old self, 
putting on this new? How are we being renewed? We're being renewed in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So prayer simply helps us to remember where our life is now. I alluded to it earlier. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places even now. Your life, we're told, is hidden with God in Christ. So prayer is an expression of true faith. Proverbs tells us to guard our heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. And true faith goes to the root of our sins so that we may kill it, mortify it. And prayer supplants our earthly desires for something far more eternal, far more substantial, something that is much more Eden-like. We were made for that. We were made to know who God is. Our C. Sproul uh, founder at Ligonier tells a story. Uh, when the ministry began, it was just a small study center in western Pennsylvania. It was founded in a town pretty close to uh, Ligonier, Pennsylvania, and so that's where it gets its rather strange name. No marketing expert would accuse us of being seeker-sensitive and coming up with a name for our ministry. Ligonier Ministries, what's a Ligonier? So I get to answer that question a lot, as you might imagine. So it was just a place that Christians would come to grow and to study together um, in a face-to-face discipleship way. Well, the ministry was growing. Word was getting out. People were coming from all over, college students and the like, to study with R.C. Sproul and others. And so R.C., uh, he was trying to really focus the, the the, the aim of the ministry, and this is several years into the ministry, he brought in, um, I guess somebody had recommended that he speak with this consultant. And the consultant was to help work out a mission statement, really refine the mission statement. And in the course of events, he's asking RC, tell us a little bit more about your purpose and relate it to the people out there on the street. What are the people out there on the street when you walk around? What is it that they most need to know? R.C. said, well, the people on the street, they need to know who God is. The consultant said, okay, helpful. Let's turn that around. What about the people in the church, the people in the pew? What is it that they need to know? R.C. said, they need to know who God is. Answer is the same. The doctrine of God informs all of life. And we speak of being reformed. And what's distinctive about being reformed in our theology? R.C. would go on to say is that being reformed in your theology means that when you first study the doctrine of God, you don't forget the doctrine of God when you go on to study the doctrine of man or the doctrine of sin, of salvation, of last things. You remember the doctrine of God and it carries through. Prayer helps us to grow in the knowledge of who God is. Who is this God? And this is stunning. He is a God, we're told, through Christ, who is praying for you in the power of the Spirit. Romans 8.34, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Yes, we're told to pray always so that we do not lose heart, but we're also brought into the reality that Christ is the one praying for us. We're told here that he intercedes for us. What is Christ praying? We're told for whom? What is he praying? In John 17, he tells us, my prayer is not for them alone. 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Remember the amazing prayer that we're given a picture of in Second Chronicles? It's the prayer of dedication for the temple. I won't read the entire passage there. But just to call out a few things from your memory, it's an amazing passage from Second Chronicles chapter 6. And we're asked rhetorically there, Solomon, but will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? It's kind of the echo throughout the scriptures. Will God indeed dwell with man throughout the earth? It is the question that all of the earth is wondering. Will it happen? Will it happen again like at Eden? Will it happen? Solomon is keenly aware that there's an impressive structure that is in front of him. And there's a dedication. God has promised to place his spirit there to abide for a season if his people are faithful, which ultimately they were not. He recognizes, Solomon, that heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Nehemiah was discouraged to hear about the state of Jerusalem, the state of the temple, the state of the walls. Solomon recognized that this is a structure that's going to be cast down eventually. He prays a prayer of dedication and fascinating the words that he uses, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He prays that the Lord, when you see your own servant praying before you in this temple, before your temple, in your temple, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, this temple, this place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, this temple. Listen to the pleas of your servant and your people Israel that when they pray toward this place, listen from heaven toward your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive, do you get the picture of what's going on here? Lord, when your servant prays in this place, toward this place, turn your eyes to this place, hear your servant when they come to you in this place, in this temple, this meeting place. He goes on and says, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands towards this house, this temple, <coughs> then hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind, that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. In John 2, his disciples, after he cleanses the temple, they remember what was said of Jesus. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus tells the Pharisees, destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. 
what is going on? How do you, how do you relate Solomon's prayer of dedication, the focus of God towards the temple, our focus on the temple, God meeting with his people in the temple, Jesus' zeal for the temple will consume him. Telling the Pharisees, destroy this temple. I will raise it up. Do you get it? Do you see? The same prayer that Solomon had for the temple is a prayer that Jesus embodies. Prayer is communion with God the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. We are brought into Jesus, the temple, and we are restored to fellowship just as we had at Eden. We're going to live out our days here, but eternity has begun now for you. That fellowship is not something that is in the future. You are communing with God the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit even now because Jesus is the temple. We are united to him. That's what it means to be in Christ. You are in the temple. We're told later that you are living stones being built into the temple. That is what prayer unites us to. That is the reality of prayer. It's not a thing to check off on the to-do list. Christians pray because you're God's children. We're God's children. Robert Murray McShane, 19th century Scottish minister, died when he was quite young. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He is praying for you. Yes, Christians pray. He's praying for you. He is communing with you even now so that you would pray always and not lose heart. Father, we come to you knowing that you are the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. Through Jesus, you are the one who is able to present us before your glorious presence without fault and to do it all with great joy. Thanks be to God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.